Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. No one can predict the future, especially when it comes to how media will change, but some have gotten very good at guessing. I'm Scarlett Fu of Bloomberg Television. In this episode, we talk about solving problems through technology and the future of digital content with Ben Lehrer. He's co-founder of Group9 Media and Thrillist Media Group and managing partner of VC firm Lehrer Hippo. Back in 2004, before there was Facebook, before there was social media, you launched this niche email newsletter that gave New York City lifestyle recommendations. How would you describe it now? Uh, very differently. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, look, so that's, that's a, 11 years ago, I think, uh, which is terrifying, and I think how long we've known each other. Stephen was one of the first people. By the way, that introduction was so awkward and awesome. Thank you. Uh, uh, but so, so, you know, 11 years ago, there is no social media. Like, Facebook does not exist, and so uh, we thought we were incredibly innovative and uh, tech-savvy in launching an email newsletter to distribute content. Back then you uh, were. Ba I, I suppose. I, we were really just copying Daily Candy. But uh, <laughs> look, I, I think the, the rules of media and I mean, the ecosystem has been flipped totally upside down multiple times over the last decade. Uh, I think the biggest flip is sort of in progress right now, which is uh, the flip that's happening and sort of the disruption that I think is coming to television. Mm -hmm. um, not that television is dead and, or, or, or dying overnight, but uh, I really do look at uh, the role that Facebook and Snapchat and, uh, and, and YouTube and, and to a lesser extent Instagram and Twitter and the role that they play in society today. Uh, they feel like the MVPDs, the, the sort of cable pipes from three decades ago. Uh, and, and so today, Thrillist is a brand that is trying to be uh, building a new cable network, mm -hmm. uh, a cable network that's distributed through the new pipes uh, rather than the, the traditional cable pipes. And so that's how I would like to think of Thrillist, and we have a lot of work to do to sort of recognize that vision, but that, that's what we're going after. All right, and so the journey to get there has been kind of zigzaggy, right? I mean, a lot of unexpected yes. turns. Um, everyone needs to reach into TV now, but not so long ago, the big idea was to combine e-commerce and content. Yep. And in 2010, you bought Jack Threads, yep. right? A flash sale site. You had told me that you approached this combination with some degree of naivete. Yes, a spectacular amount, <laughs> uh, as I have approached almost everything that I've done in my life. Uh, yeah, so we were building Thrillist. Um, we were building an audience, and at that point, Thrillist was sort of for dudes. Um, and today, Thrillist is less for dudes and more for people who like to do fun things. Uh, and uh, Thrillist had a big audience of people who did the things that we suggested. So we'd write about a restaurant, and people would go. Or we'd write about a clothing store, and people would buy shit. And uh, we took that relationship to sort of represent a kind of trust that we weren't necessarily getting credit for um, in the business model, the advertising business model that was sort of what the company had been founded on. And mm -hmm. we had um, a belief that we should uh, find ways to take advantage of that relationship. And so Jack Threads, who had been a very small advertiser, but a very successful advertiser in converting our readers into their buyers, uh, was uh, something that we went out and bought 
as a way to see if we could find new revenue. Um, we certainly did. In, in fact, we saw a lot, so much new revenue that it became, in many ways, the primary focus of the business. Uh, but we soon found out it had, like, that wasn't who we were as mm -hmm. managers. Uh, and that, so we had to build a secondary management team and, uh, and just and, and the, the cash needs of the two businesses were totally different. Thrillist became less for men and more gender neutral, and sort of the businesses ended up uh, growing apart, but within one cap table. And it was a few years ago that we went out to raise money for uh, for the combined entity, where frankly the market sort of you know hit me across the face and said, "Hey, buddy, these are two separate businesses." You. They're both real businesses, but they're different. And uh, there was a certain set of people who I think really understood our media business and understood our vision for our media business, and the same for Jack Threads. And so we spun Jack Threads off um, into a totally independent, separate company and, and sort of went and redoubled our efforts to build a media company, which is sort of where my heart and interest has always been. You had mentioned that you were hoping with this combination it would be one plus one equals Three. Yes. It wasn't one plus one equals three. It was more like one plus one equals one and a half. One and a half. I would say is probably the math. But that was because that, that was in investors' eyes. So mm -hmm. you would have a a, a tech uh, like a, a media investor of which there's like three in the whole world uh, because it's a really hard. Business. And they're all in New York. Um, right. And like it's like really hard to raise money for a media company. But the folks who were looking at our media business liked what we were doing and liked how we thought about the world and, and the direction that it was going. But they saw. Commerce, and, and frankly, it was the way that we did commerce. I think that media and commerce live beautifully together, and that media companies' core asset is trust with, and and access to an audience, mm -hmm. um, and and their businesses, media businesses, are in large part based on many brands paying them lots of money to access that audience. And so the idea that you, as a media company, would own your, uh, would own a business that directly monetized that audience makes plenty of sense. Uh, we just. Uh, the, the brand Thrillist and the brand Jack Threads had less and less to do with one another as time went on, and Jack Threads took a path forward um, that many of the companies we've invested in, to great success or great failure, have taken, which is they built real vertically uh, integrated commerce, designing clothing, shipping stuff. Like they built a retail enterprise, mm -hmm. and that takes a lot of money and a lot of focus and a lot of expertise, none of which we had, mm -hmm. uh, and so. We, we realized that we, you know, like the game of whack-a-mole that anyone plays when they build a business, like you're focused on something and then some other shit breaks. And we were, we had way too many moles and not enough clubs uh, to handle the two businesses. And so uh, I think commerce will be a part of Group 9. Absolutely. Um, I don't think commerce where we hold inventory mm -hmm. um, will be something that we'll do in the early stages of exploring. Uh, monetization through through direct sales but the idea that uh, particularly in a digital world that these large audiences that you can sort of that, and the data that you have and the understanding that you have of these audiences the, the, the fact that you know like there is a way to uh, create value not only through advertising uh, a bunch of ways now people who like your media business like it a lot and that includes discovery because last year they made a 100 million dollar investment in Thrillist and companies run by your sister, as well as th those yep. by your father. And you created Group 9 Media. Yeah. How did that investment come about? Well, so, so Group 9 was an idea that w was, was based on 
a little bit of sort of studying history. Uh, so we really did go in and look at, at sort of the last giant media, uh, like the last giant disruption and, and the rise of cable. Um, and uh, it was not, it's, it's not a, like a really hard story to sort of understand and track, which is um, cable, the cable pipes became dominant. The number of cable subscribers in the US went from zero to 50 million over the course of a decade. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, um, and, and consumer behavior changed and people spent all night sitting in front of the TV consuming content and it created an opportunity for th all these vertical networks to arise. And so everyone from ESPN to CNN to MTV, like every big cable network, generally speaking, launched within 12 years of each other. And um, what ended up happening is, as, as has happened in sort of every generation of media, they uh, ended up consolidating. And they formed Scripps and they formed Viacom and they formed Time Warner and they formed Disney's cable business and they formed Discovery Communications. And, um, and this has happened in print and this has happened in the newspaper business and like this always happens. Um, consolidation comes so that you have more leverage with the people who distribute your content, better advertiser solutions at scale and some financial leverage and learnings and other things you know, to oversimplify. And we looked at what's happening right now in digital media specifically around this massive shift to video within all the dominant video, uh, all, all the dominant digital pipes, um, the fact that most traditional media companies have spent the last decade investing in stock buybacks rather than truly leaning in to digital, because you know the digital, you know, cents versus traditional dollars, uh, that that was the case. But uh, I think as as the TV business is starting to show some signs of weakness, mm -hmm. not that it's going away overnight. Mm -hmm. I just like I always say this, particularly in a building where. There's a TV network and people are scary, uh, but uh, are scary. But but like, there there are headwinds that that you know cable is facing. Um, I, I think a thinning bundle. I think more than anything, attention from millennials. Mm -hmm. You know, the phone is in many ways the first screen for people who didn't grow up tethered to a cable subscription, um, and. Uh, the idea that, that through these new sets of pipes there are opportunities to build new, the new MTV, the new ESPN, the new whatever, and they don't have to be digital versions of those, but they have to be brands that make awesome content built for the format that people consume in. And so as short form video becomes an increasingly big part of our media diet, uh, the idea was how do we find brands that are uh, leading in short form video in categories that we think are big and important uh, and that are becoming increasingly important culturally, mm -hmm. where we can go and instead of being one of 50 or 60 uh, digital media businesses in the wind, as Thrillist was, you go raise money every two years, you do the, you know, and we were, we were on the larger side of that equation, but still, it's, it's a hard. rat race. It's a rat race, it sucks. You're just like one of, you know, like you're not a must buy for any advertiser or for almost any advertiser you aren't necessarily able to go and attract the absolute top tier of talent. Uh, it's hard. And we said, is there a way that we can skip the line mm -hmm. and that we can sort of put ourselves in a, in a dominant position um, in the digital media landscape? How do we identify other properties that we think are doing this right? And um, we focused our attention on um, brands that had massive reach on distributed platforms. And, um, because of the investing that we do um, at LHV, 
we were early investors, sort of incubated, had incubated two companies, one of which is my sister's company called the Dodo, which is the leading um, animal uh, media brand uh, on the internet, about one and a half billion monthly video views, um, the Snapchat Discover channel for animals, um, the second biggest Facebook audience in the US behind Tasty. Mm -hmm. uh, they had built this amazing community in a category that we thought was really on the rise. Like, how many people here don't know who Harambe is? No one. Good. You're all nice people. But <laughs> that, like, the, I, that, that is a new cultural phenomenon. And, I, and there are more pets than there are children in the United States. Mm. Look at the way that people self-identify on Twitter and on Facebook. Like, Ben, I work in media, I have two kids and a dog, and I like the Mets. Like, it's sports for more people than sports. Um, That's a great way and, to put it. And so we looked at it and said, this is a giant opportunity of a, a huge potential business. Okay, put a pin in it. And then another business that we had founded at LHV that had sort of been my father's brainchild, although had been run by a team uh, that we had built and sort of funded. Uh, was now this, which is the leading social news brand in the world. Mm -hmm. Almost three billion monthly video views, another Snapchat Discover channel, uh, the fastest growing you know, millennial media audience in the world. And we said, well look, we've got these two brands that are dominant from a scale perspective and that dream in video. Um, we have Thrillist, which has a bunch of infrastructure around um, within the advertising community, within branded content creation, um, a big O&O audience, a massive desire and need to get um, not sort of into video and like build a video team, but to become a brand that dreams in video. And we said, how do we put these three things together to create something that has real heft? We went out, we talked to Discovery, uh, and Discovery said, we, we're all in. We sort of see the, the changes the same way that you do. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, we've been building a brand here um, in its early stages called Seeker. Um, that was really built on YouTube, but had built a big audience um, in the science category. And they said, you guys are sort of better at building these digital businesses than we are, the same way we're better at building linear cable nets than you. Mm -hmm. Why don't we partner, we'll contribute this in addition to capital, and, you, and this will be the fourth brand, um, and, and the science brand, and really the VR brand is how we're sort of thinking about Seeker. And so um, we put that deal together, announced it in October, closed it in December, and uh, we're trying to, we're, we're sort of working a lot, putting these things together. It's incredibly hard, but uh, it's Now clear. it's the non-glamorous part. It is the least glamorous thing I've ever done. Uh, it's super duper hard culturally mm -hmm. to take four different cultures of really dynamic, smart people, mm -hmm. um, to, to not be overly prescriptive about what lives at the brand level and what lives at corporate. Mm -hmm. uh, whew, it, is, it is really hard, but it is totally the right thing to do that this is absolutely, uh, like everything that we, we hoped has, has, is coming true. Um, but it's tough because uh, there are, we, we are trying to do something that we haven't really seen done mm -hmm, mm -hmm. since like, you know, cable consolidation. So that being the case, are you free of the rat race completely, or do you still have to go out and pitch investors? I mean, maybe not since October, but do you see that in your future? In your I think we'll future? raise more capital in the future, mm -hmm. um, if uh, be, for a few reasons. One is, uh, I th genuine. There's genuine ambition here, unlike anything that I've ever been a part of. Uh, I, you know, 
I'm, I, maybe I haven't been that ambitious, but like I think that we can build something legitimately massive. Uh -huh. um, and uh, I'm really thinking about this in sort of a longer term view than, uh, than I traditionally did. I think a lot of startups are always in the mode of sort of putting lipstick on the pig. Um, and for those of you who or have founded companies or who like you understand what that means, which is at all times you're sort of like in the messy world of building your business, you're trying to make it like look nice for investors and potential buyers just in case someone shows up. And that that's distracting mm -hmm. and takes a bunch of energy and is probably not the best thing for the business. And so we're not in lipstick mode at all. Uh, maybe for the first time ever. Uh, we're just building and it's like a little messy, but it's all, we're focused on the right stuff and we have a real strategy and a, a real long-term view. So I think that we'll want more capital over time to invest into the brands that we have now and to continue to build new formats of content and help those brands get to creating um, a bunch of longer form stuff and really sort of becoming brands. Like when someone uses the word vertical at Group 9, we are like, don't do that. <laughs> Call it a brand. Like we're building brands. and. Uh, and that means that how do these brands manifest themselves offline? What are the commerce opportunities? What are the various partnerships? What are the international um, aspirations? And they don't have to be the same for every brand. And so uh, we need money for that. I, I also think the opportunity to have more than four brands is a real one. Mm -hmm. I, I don't uh, have I, brands right now that I've sort of identified and said that. Like, I, like that's the one that I want. But because of LHV on the investing side, we invest in media companies with more regularity than any other sort of earlier mid-stage firm. So we have a good sense of the ecosystem. We know who's doing the right stuff and the wrong stuff and who's having success. And so I think that's an interesting source of um, education and deal flow. Uh, and uh, so we would want capital for that. And, and I also have a belief that, and I'm stealing this from, from something that years ago, Andrew Creighton at Vice said to me, which I thought was brilliant, and I think they've actually done a pretty good job of doing, which is think of ways to turn your cost centers into profit centers. And so how do we think about the agency, the creative agency, and the services that we provide to our clients that sit at sort of the core of Group 9 within our ad sales group? How do we think about that not being a group of services that only runs media and content that lives within our brands, but how do we think about using the insights and the the sort of learnings that we have from living at the cutting edge of, of media, con of creation distribution, and use that to build a profitable, mm -hmm. self-sustaining services business? Or how do we think about uh, the technology platform that we've built that powers the content creation and distribution and insights for all of our brands, and how we might be able to activate that for uh, other partners, whether they're brands, whether they're agencies, whether they're other media businesses. And, and I think the Washington Post has done a really beautiful job of doing that and investing in that over the last few years. So we, we look around at uh, what all the different opportunities. I think right now the, the key is focus and not to sort of try to boil the ocean because we could easily get, uh, we could try to do too many things and screw it up. Mm -hmm. But the, the overarching aspiration is to not have four good digital brands. It's to do something uh, bigger that will cost more money and that hopefully will be worth more money. And the brands will, of course, attract their advertising dollars as well. And, and they'll do that at, uh, in a bunch of ways. Uh, they'll do that at, at, uh, through a sort of a centralized mm -hmm. go-to-market so that the biggest brands and agencies have one touch point for us. 
although we'll then have to come up with very strategic, creative, sort of differentiated solutions depending on the brands and which of our brands they want to be participating with. Uh, but then the big unlock, the big question mark is, and I, I really hope and believe that it is an, a when, not an if, uh, places like Facebook become uh, platforms where legitimate scaled monetization can happen for publishers. And I think Facebook and Google are uh, sort of running right at each other right now. Mm -hmm. um, and if you think about where the next giant pocket of advertising is that neither of them are fully taking and owning, it's television. And uh, I, I think that those two platforms with sort of the dark horse of Snapchat emerging uh, creates an ecosystem where there's more competition uh, and, and, you know, and I'll throw in the sort of like real wild cards of Amazon and, and Netflix, mm -hmm. um, where there is ultimately more competition for great content. And where um, I believe that these platforms will create opportunities for us to make real money, not just to distribute branded content, um, and not just to sort of get a little bit of money for live and some things that are sort of like nice head nods to acknowledge that we're spending a lot of money on their platforms. Um, I believe that there's a genuine desire and, and, and interest at those places to, to allow the best media businesses to build, uh, and the best video media businesses, to build real businesses on those platforms. And so that is uh, one of the fundamental uh, focuses for the long-term monetization. At the core of this is you believe TV is not dead. Despite all the obituaries being written about TV being dead, it is not dead. What does that mean for the future of traditional broadcasters and digital, digital brands? Are you surprised that we're not seeing more roll-ups like the one that happened between uh, the different brands that you run and I think you will see many more. I think there, there's What's not been a, the holdup so far, though? Well, the, I, I mean, so the holdup so far has been for a long time the TV business has been much healthier than we would, you know, every year it's like the year that the other shoe's going to drop and then the shoe doesn't drop. Uh, so I think the business need, these businesses need to feel it a little more. Mm. I, I think the sort of the the lightning rod that people are now pointing to is ESPN because it's always been the healthiest TV business. And the subscriptions and, are now slowing and the, down. And, and, it's, and it's clear now there's enough of a pattern that it's not going to turn around. Mm. Uh, not to say that ESPN isn't still the most spectacular brand and the most spectacular. I mean, like I worship ESPN as a company, but. They're cutting jobs. ESPN is going to get smaller, not bigger. Mm -hmm. Like that's not, again, I don't think that that's my opinion. I think that that's a fact. And uh, so in a, in a world where, uh, where some of the really big companies, you know, the, the, the big eight or the big 10 or the big 12 TV companies who sit on huge amounts of cash and, uh, and still massively profitable businesses, um, there comes a time, and I believe discovery investing in us is an is a indicator of that. I think what NBC has done with BuzzFeed is an indicator of that. I think um, even what Univision has done in buying The Onion and Gawker uh, is uh, an indicator of that. I think Complex selling to Verizon and Awesomeness selling to Verizon mm -hmm. is an indicator of that. Like you are seeing deals get done. Um, you are seeing consolidation happening with Time Warner and AT&T. You're seeing consolidation happening with Yahoo and AOL. Um, I, I sort of think it's happening. Um, I think, you know, there will be... Uh, but Google, Facebook, Snapchat, they're kind of on the edges of it. Well, Google, Facebook, and Snapchat aren't... They are... They're distribution platforms. They're the MVPDs. They're Comcast. 
Now, eventually, Comcast bought NBC. Correct. And so when does that happen? I think the answer is at some point. Um, I'm a little, I'm, I'm, I'm not holding my breath for that as much as I am those, those brands, those platforms first creating monetization for publishers that they don't own and understanding what that looks like and what that feels like and over time uh, getting into that business. But uh, it's not, it's, it, is, it is far from inconceivable, I, I think, that uh, those guys end up becoming content owners. I don't expect it to happen right now. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit. We sure. talked about LHV, uh, Lara Hippo Ventures, and of course your father casts a pretty big shadow um, in He's Silicon fat. Valley, right? He's very fat. <laughs> um. I didn't quite mean it that way. Um, talk about your father. He's the co-founder of Huffington Post. Yep. Helped or hurt your business ambitions? No, my father's my best friend. He, <laughs> he helps my ambitions. He helps me a huge amount. Uh, you know, I mean... You've said he's a fan of nepotism? I am a fan of nepotism. <laughs> uh, I am, like, the biggest fan of nepotism. Nepotism generally works because pretty, really smart people generally have pretty smart kids. So, like, come on. So, I, I think that... Uh, I, I, my, my dad has been uh, instrumental in helping me there's a, he has a few life lessons. One of them that, that I appreciate is uh, he's taught me that everyone is a fraud. And by that I mean whenever I feel insecure or, or, or concerned that I am losing control, he says, it's fine, so is everybody else. No one has any idea what the hell's going on. And I sort of believe that to be the case, not in a way that everyone's an idiot, but like this is a crazy time. Technology is flipping the entire world upside down. If you work in media and you think you have a handle on it, you don't. You're screwed. You have no handle on it. If you work in retail and you think you have a handle on it, you don't. You're screwed. Like these are the biggest businesses are being transformed right now. And so what he's done is basically give he's infused me with confidence to to try to, you know, like try shit. Mm -hmm. Uh and um that's and but but like you know he and I we talk about business but we talk about business much more in the sense of he says how is your day and I say oh and he goes no 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 I mean how are your kids and I'm like oh they're good and he's like okay I don't want to talk about your company goodbye um, so uh, when when big decisions the idea for Group Nine was definitely something that as uh, that that he and I had been cooking up for years with no. Uh, with no meat on the bone. We mm -hmm. called it Nuco mm -hmm. for like three years. And it was just this idea that there needed to be a holding company um, and that, that consolidation was coming. That was his insight from having lived through a few, you know, a few of these. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, and he said to me, when I was, you know, 20 something years old in 1980, whatever, I was working in the cable business and I saw that consolidation was going to be coming and I didn't have the access to capital or the confidence or the, you know, whatever to, to do it. Mm -hmm. And I watched a bunch of people around me build these amazing things and I got to be a part of it and, and participate in it. But he said, you see this happening now, why don't you do it? And I went through, I went through a sort of a, a process of saying, look, I've built this great, or you know, what I thought of as a really good asset and thrillist and this company that that people were telling me was was really valuable and that I could 
go and pursue things and maybe I could sell it and I could, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And, and, he, and he was, he inspired me to say, like, nah, let it ride. Like, come on, like, what's, like, have fun with this. Mm -hmm. Like, take advantage of a very unique time and a very unique opportunity and a unique position that you're in. There's not a lot of 35-year-olds who have been working in media for, and running a media company for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So, like, do it. And so like, that's where, where he has created nothing but opportunity for me and, and uh, I definitely do not feel hampered by him. No, he yeah. allows you to take risks and totally. he gives you the confidence to yep. do that. You graduated from UPenn Wharton. You're not an engineer. Not Wharton. Not Wharton. You couldn't get into Wharton. Oh, I'm sorry. No. Nope. Bad fact checking sorry. on my part. <laughs> you, Barely you, got into Penn. <laughs> but you graduated from there. I did get out of it. Okay. I, I made it out, although I still have a horrible nightmare every few months about <laughs> not having passed my French test or something to that effect. But that's okay. It's years yep. past, right? Okay. You're not an engineer. You don't have a tech background. Nope. So what is the hardest part of the tech landscape to master? I mean, there's a lot of terminology, and you're around a lot of hardcore tech people. Yeah, well, I mean, look, we've been doing this for a long time now, and I've been lucky to have had the first CTO, real CTO I ever hired, be someone that um, became sort of like a tech mentor to me, mm. who I still have an incredibly close relationship with and who was with me for seven years before going and um, working at another LHV company. Um, and so I've had the benefit of getting what was what's really unique about him is uh, he speaks both tech and English, um, and so he really and, and I think what he taught me and, and really beyond him just a, a belief that I have is and we talked a little bit about this technology makes anything possible, and so the answer should always be yes, and whatever we imagine to be possible because of technology can be. It doesn't necessarily mean you're always backing a team that actually has the, the skill to do it, mm -hmm. but crazy shit can be built. I mean, just, I mean, look at, look at the development, like look at your phone and what that looked like a decade ago. Look at what, uh, look at Tesla, look at like some of these companies and the things that they're doing are like almost unimaginable. Mm -hmm. We're not investing in, in super hardcore tech. We're investing in companies that are that are tech enabled for the most part. New York is not an amazing hub for technology. It's an amazing hub for finance. It's an amazing hub for fashion. It's an amazing hub for retail. It's an amazing hub for media. It's an amazing hub for advertising. It's not a hardcore tech town. Mm -hmm. And so the, the things that I'm drawn to are generally more around brands, generally more around uh, content. Um, Technology is an enabler, mm -hmm. and so the challenges that our companies are trying to solve with technology are not even the most uh, unimaginable, unbelievable tech challenges. And so I'm sort of of the mind that, like, tech, it's a, it's an, it's the great enabler, but uh, anything can be can be created. And of course, when you look at what's going on in Silicon Valley, um, there's been plenty of boom and bust cycles. I wonder what effect does consolidation on the left coast mean for the New York tech scene? Does each convulsion in California necessarily mean that there's retrenchment here, even if you know New York is not the capital of technology, it's a good center for retail, for media, yeah. for fashion? Well, so retrenchment is dumb. Like, the best companies are built when the, when the competition is retrenching and you invest through the, the downturn. Um, that is, like, that's just like how it gets done. And so uh, I, I think that 
you know, when a, when a market is under fire, whatever market that is, that's also when the most opportunity exists. The reason that uh, the, the digital media companies, the, the BuzzFeeds and the Vices and the, the Group Nines and the refineries and the whatevers of the world exist is because traditional media retrenched and, and, and digital and these companies got an opportunity mm -hmm. because what for, for pennies on the dollar, traditional media could have gone and filled this space and could have been at the leading edge of it, but they weren't um, because they were, uh, be, because as, as a very big company, when disruption comes, I've been disrupted as a small company, mm -hmm. and it's really fucking hard. As a giant company, I imagine it is the most uncomfortable feeling in the entire world, and you have to have, uh, you, you know, you have to have, be fearless. Mm -hmm. um, and, and public companies are generally not rewarded for fearlessness in the short term. Uh, so, you know, I, I just think retrenching, I think it's time to double down. So given all that, where do you think we are in the, in the tech cycle? Are we in a bubble right now? Well, I think we are. I think the stock market mm -hmm. is, I don't quite understand, and I'm, regardless of people's political beliefs, I don't understand how the stock market is at the all-time high of highs when we have a sort of crazy person running the country. Uh, so. There's a disconnect there. That's a little weird, right? That's a little weird. So I'm not like, I think, you know, I understand pro-business pro policies, but like, I think a lot of other factors, you know, have, have an effect on, on the market mm -hmm. and, and, you know, geopolitical issues and things like that. Uh, you know, it's great that we're 50 days in and there haven't been any terrifying things that have happened. Like, I mean, there have been plenty of terrifying things that have happened. But I mean, there hasn't been like... A terrorist attack. Like, like, you know, yeah. the things that are inevitable yeah. to happen. And so, yeah, I'm not like wanting to own a bunch of stocks right now. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, like Facebook, generationally, probably multi-generationally important, like magnificent, amazing company. Amazon, yes. Apple, yes. Google, yes. Like these are probably the greatest companies that have ever been built in the history of mankind. And so these are, I, I'm, a, I'm so long these companies and want to own these stocks and want to be associated with these businesses forever or mm -hmm. for, for, you know, as long as I can imagine. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but I think there's probably like a little too much heat in the stock market. I don't know that those companies per se are overvalued versus I don't think they are. I think those companies are going to continue to grow and, and do fantastically well. But, uh, but I think the stock market as a whole is like, it doesn't. There's just something that feels a little off to me. What do you think about Snapchat and it's going public? Um, you know, it fell for a second day. Among the analysts that we've surveyed here at Bloomberg, there are seven analysts, and no one has a buy on it. Everyone has either a hold or a sell. Now that, of course, is also due to the fact that the lot of the banks that underwrote the IPO can't publish their opinions yet. They're in the quiet period, yeah. and they have to wait until they do that, and they're probably going to be more sympathetic. Nonetheless, what's your take on Snapchat? Is it going to be a profitable company? I think yes. I think that it is not. Uh, and, and by the way, I'm, as, a, as a Twitter user, I love Twitter. But I think that it's not Twitter as a business. I think that it's a, 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 a better business than Twitter, mm -hmm. um, if for no other reason than advertising uh, is, is a video business. 
Like the business of advertising is, is the business of video. Mm -hmm. uh, and Snapchat is a platform that uh, lives and breathes video. That, that is what it is. And that's, that's not this sort of natural form factor for the Twitter experience. And so I think that that's just a giant limiting factor to the, um, I think Twitter's a great company. I think that, that the, the, the expectations on it are unfair. And so it gets beaten up when like, maybe it's just not supposed to be a $20 billion company. Like, maybe you should just confess to that it's a niche product. Well, I mean, 300 million people use it. It's not that niche. There was a time 10 but years again, ago where 300 million people represented like the greatest consolidation of audience in the history of mankind. I don't think it's a niche, but, but it doesn't need to be a $20 billion company. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of really good $4 billion companies or $8 billion companies. Uh, I would like to build one of those uh, and, uh, or invest in a single one of those uh, as a startup. So I, I, think, that, I think Snapchat is, is real. I think Snapchat, you know, to, to, to become Facebook and to become Google, and, you know, there's an ocean of work that needs to be mm -hmm. done. But I think that the platform I think that the product development that they do and the sort of feel for their audience is exquisite. I think that, uh, that the space that they can fill around um, really owning sort of one-to-one -one video communication or, or sort of small group communication is a space that Facebook has, for the most part, um, abandoned mm. to, become a, uh, to become the future of TV. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, um, I think that there's a there's a, a place for them to build a really big business, and uh, they're they're you know we're, we're big partners of theirs. We have two Discover channels, uh, and uh, I think that the way that they're building their advertising business around the auction um, is uh, really smart, and and the sort of self service products that they're going to build, um, or that I believe that they'll build, are going to I think it's going to be you know after Google and Facebook, the next place that brands spend. Uh, scaled digital reach and frequency dollars online. Now, put on your LHV hat for a moment. Yep. You also invest in startups. Um, I know you're looking for a company like Snapchat. Everyone's looking for a company like Snapchat. Everyone's looking for the next big thing. How does that experience of evaluating other people's companies, uh, what's a lesson that you've learned as an entrepreneur about how to invest in other people's companies? What kind of answers do you come prepared to, uh, to offer well, we're, we're investors. seed investors. I mean, I guess the definite, we're early stage investors. So we're really, like, we're really just investing in people. Mm. Um, rather than concept. Rather, you know, I mean, look, we'd like it if you, you know, hopefully a good concept, hopefully an actually launched business with plenty of good data. But it's really founding teams that are the number one focus. Um, you know, fortunately, we, we are finding enough good teams, good products, whatever, so that we're not having to take, like, one and sacrificing the other. We're not, right. We're not having to make those sacrifices. Uh, sometimes we, we cho choose to do that. Mm. But uh, we're, not in, uh, we're, we're not investing in companies, really. We're investing in people. And so, you know, you meet a lot of people and you start to, it's like, I mean, it's not exactly dating, but like you sort of lean in or you lean back, right? You like, you like them. You start to get a feel for it. You're buying what they're selling. You trust them. You share a vision. You have a common, you know, they, you just, you, you have a, a, a feel for what they're doing that you think is smart. We see an incredible number of businesses. I mean, you know, thousands and thousands of companies a year. And um, I certainly don't see every single one of them, but our team, we process a huge amount of data. And uh, 
good stuff rises and uh, the stuff that we, we tend to invest in stuff that we sort of understand mm -hmm. or have some experience in mm -hmm. uh, where we think we can help. And we've seen enough companies now where there are some, some telltale signs through pattern recognition, which is like the sort of silly investor thing to say, but through, uh, through feel. Um, like, you know, I'm not smashing, you know, Excels looking at like the business model. The only thing I know about the business model is it's totally wrong because it's like a brand new startup and like this is just not how it's going to go. So it's, so it's like, organic, it's gut. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's totally gut mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's, and, and it like, it, it, it is not hard. It is not particularly hard for me to make decisions about the things that I invest in. I don't, like, you know, lay up, lay in bed, like, like wondering if I should or shouldn't. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm pretty decisive and, uh, and, and let my gut drive. And so far, that's, you know, <coughs> Stephen was nice to mention some of our really good companies, which is awesome. We have plenty of not really good companies. Or soon to be good uh, companies. Or soon to be not good companies. Uh, you know, we've, we, we're in over 300 companies over the last six years. So we've got the full spectrum of like literal criminals to like <laughs> the greatest people in the world. And uh, so we, you know, we like, don't tell anyone that. It's a potpourri. Uh, but like, like we've, but like, so we've seen it all. So, yeah. so, you know, I think generally speaking, more often than not, we're, sort of right. And that's our business model. I like the sort of right idea because your journey from newsletter to integrated e-commerce, editorial content site, to a holding company of brands, how much of that was by design? <laughs> Clearly none of Literally it? Literally none at all, ever. It was all improvised. Of course. First of all, look at, I mean, just like, all we were doing was trying to sort of move with the world Mm -hmm. um, and get the wind at our backs um, and be in the places where we thought that like the momentum was coming um, and where we would be able to create, you know, impact the largest number of people and, uh, and set ourselves up for building the most sort of the realist business. And there, there have been winds that have turned quickly and we've, you know, been blown off course. I'm using lots of like yachting references, uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't think that, like, if you were, if, if, if I were to go back 10 years, 11 years, and tell you what Thrillist looks like now, first of all, I would have, I mean, I can't explain how naive I was, and probably 10 years from now, how naive I will think I look right now sounding the way that I sound. I mean, like, I still don't really have any idea what's going on, and, like, that's okay, because I don't think anyone else does either. All right, thank you so much. And our thanks to Ben Lehrer. Thank you. Co-founder of Thrillist and CEO of Group 9 Media. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or email techevents at Bloomberg.net to get invited to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.